Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. Stephen Philip Harvey is a saxophonist, composer, arranger, and educator. As a musician and band leader, Stephen has performed extensively in the U.S. Several projects under his belt include his electric quintet, Sphinx, and his mid-sized jazz combo, SPH-8, and his large ensemble in the Stephen Philip Harvey Jazz Orchestra. In 2016, he released his debut album as a composer and band leader, Sweet Childhood, and his follow-up album, Smash, releases on June 17, 2022. As a composer and arranger, Stephen has worked with a diverse array of musicians and instruments. It is his practice to funnel his eclectic musical background into his compositions, fusing jazz and classical with popular funk, hip-hop, rock, and gospel. As an educator, Stephen has held instructional positions at all levels of education in diverse areas of music education. He is currently a choir director at a local high school, an applied instructor at Salisbury University, and an adjunct professor at Youngstown State University. Stephen is a graduate of Seton Hill University and subsequently received his Master's of Music at Youngstown State University. In this episode, we chat about his journey through music, the evolution of jazz, and what it actually takes to compose music. To transition to the conversation, enjoy a snippet of a Stephen original. Super excited to have Stephen Philip Harvey on the podcast today. Stephen is an orchestrator. He is a composer. He is all about music. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Clay. Man, I am stoked to have you here. Um, you know, you've you've got a wealth of knowledge and passion around this area, and just really excited to dive into a lot of these places. And uh, learn about your journey, and uh, you know, for myself, learn a little bit about this area because it's just a little bit different from what you know I'm used to uh, to learning about. So, in order for us to get to know you a little bit, I've got a couple of quick fire get to know you questions. You ready? Okay, shoot. All right. So you're about to go on a road trip for called a five hour road trip. You're in the passenger seat. You got your best friend driving you. You guys stop at a gas station convenience store. And you're going to walk in that store and you're going to go get one drink and one snack. What are you going to get? Oh my gosh. Oh no. It's a, okay. So I'm going to, I'm still going to give you two answers just so I can cheat it a little bit. If it's a morning, I'm probably going to get some sort of coffee depending on the uh, weather, like iced coffee, hot coffee, and then probably some sort of like granola bar 
I don't really get super hungry on road trips if they're like short, but if it's evening time and I need to like stay up, I'm going to chug a monster and probably like some candy of some sort. Just give you all the gummy worms. Yeah. 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 Basically. One of my snacks would probably be something gummy. Yeah. Some, some sort of gummy snack. Um, all right. Perfect. So a couple of would you rather questions. Would you rather be in a nineties boy band or an eighties rock band? Nineties boy band. A hundred percent. Are you, that'd be a dream come true. Would you rather send a letter to a friend or receive a letter from a friend? I'd rather receive a letter from a friend. Yeah. Just don't like writing. Oh no, I love I like <laughs> writing. I just like I which one feels intrinsically more rewarding just to like hear their words and thoughts. Uh, I already know what I have to say. It's probably like, I love you, you're the best. <laughs> it's probably gonna be dumb. So receiving a letter, especially a physical letter from a friend yeah. would be would be pretty cool because that's so rare these days. Very, extremely rare. So, uh, shout out to uh, Stephen's friends. You know now. Yeah, I should. I should do that. Now. I should send out some letters. Yeah, <laughs> Stephen, you. I love the answer. The immediate answer around a '90s boy band. That's oh wonderful. no. Oh, my older sister was like kind of obsessed with NSYNC, and like via proximity, uh, I was obsessed with NSYNC because it was like the days of buying CDs uh, and. <laughs> The first CDs that like she bought as like a not an adult but like as a teenager or preteen were like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and B2K uh, uh, CDs. So like we were all in boy band mode, even though like I just didn't have any autonomy at that point. So I really love boy bands because of that. Which member of NSYNC do you think you could have replaced? I could have replaced Joy Fatone really quickly. Chris Kirkpatrick is like the unsung hero because in my mind he's singing all the high harmonies so like uh and he's the one from pennsylvania like he's the one with the black twisty hair that no one ever remembers for some reason uh but yeah he's irreplaceable everyone always thinks of justin and jc jc chaze and uh why am i uh why am i forgetting lance bass yeah they, they, those are the three they definitely i think of i could have replaced joey fatone because then i could be on game shows like joey fatone <laughs> yeah you got an ulterior motive there yeah. Oh, that's awesome, Steven. And I know as a kid, I mean, you're very musically inclined and we're going to get into a lot of that. But uh, I, I recall you telling me a story about you going to the grocery store and probably annoying the mess out of your mom. Uh, could you tell that oh, story? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, after growing up with like lots of musical things around me, so musical movies and musicals on videotapes, um, I, I liked making up songs. I loved to just like make, I still do to this day, but a game that I used to play because I would have to go grocery shopping with my mom called like everything's a musical. And I would sing in the aisles about different things that I was picking up and it was annoying and I would dance. And like, if I had kids and my kid was doing this to me in public, I'd be like, oh my gosh, you're, you just won't stop. But looking back on it, it's one of my favorite bits to do. I still do it like in the class. Like I think uh five days a week because I, I also teach high school choir so like five days a week i'll probably make up a song at least once during the day can we get an example of a grocery store ballad a grocery store ballad okay oh gosh uh i'm sick right now so give me like two seconds to think of uh we have these peas we have this corn 
We put it in the cart together. We have this rice. We have these beans. We'll eat in any type of weather. Oh, mother dearest, you're feeding me well. Isn't this grocery store just swell? And that's usually when I would get yelled at and then wait 10 minutes to do the next one. <laughs> that was but imagine like cans in my hand. Completely off the cuff, Stephen. That, that's well yeah. done. That's well done. Sir. It's more freestyling nowadays for the children, but uh, I, I, I don't want to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's awesome. Well, thank you for, for sharing the story. I think that's, that's neat. And it reminds me of my brother, honestly, he's, uh, yeah. You know, he, he's not a composer or anything like that, but he would break into song about just the most random things and would not care at all and continued does not care what other people think. And I think that's such a great quality. I, I agree. The funny part is that, like, I'm cool with embarrassing myself and being embarrassed in public. What I'm not cool is like secondhand embarrassment, like watching that. So, like, if he were to do that, or not actually not even if he were to do that, I think that stuff is fun. But like movies where people are actually embarrassed and not embarrassing themselves for fun, if that makes sense. Yep. Like that trips me up. I gotta, I gotta not watch. <laughs> it's it's ironic and hilarious. Sure, sure. And then one other question for you, Stephen, just to get to know you: What group were you part of in high school, and how did that influence what you do today? Uh, I was part of like the the band and choir group in high school. I went to a really small high school, so like right now. I teach at a high school that graduates about uh, three to 400 people a class. My graduating class was 75 kids. So it's like everyone knew everyone. Everyone knew each other's birthdays. Everyone knew each other's little siblings. So there were groups and stuff based on like the activities you did. But there, it wasn't as, as str- like people weren't strangers to everyone. So like I would consider myself part of many different groups. And a lot of people said that I kept a lot of different groups. But like the uh, main couple groups that I would hang out with are um, the band and choir people, like people who were in band and choir with me, uh, and then the people who like did um, like punk rock shows, like uh, screamo shows and stuff. Uh, I really liked going. Like I like my friends, and I, I like going to those shows. I wasn't always like the biggest fan of um, punk rock compared to like my friends, but I really enjoyed spending time with them and like uh, getting into that music. That's neat. All right. I ask two questions of every guest. So I'm going to do that for okay. you now, Steve. All right. So the we're going to go deep first. How would you define your why or your purpose in life? Oh, man. So the I think my, my purpose is kind of ever-changing. It, it's been a metamorphosis, especially since like the age of 18. Uh, but I think my meta, my uh, my my purpose or my why would be like to be the best creator that I can be with the tools that I have. And it's all about like continued growth and perseverance in that mindset. So like just creating what I can when I can to the best of my ability. And. How you mentioned perseverance. I think that's perfect. I usually ask people to define growth mindset, but for you, I would love for you to define perseverance. Well, one of the interesting things about art in general, whether you're a sculptor, a dancer, an actor, a writer, um, or a musician slash composer, 
is that you are a person and you have feelings and you also have this this work that you're doing, this creative work that you're doing. And a lot of people kind of romanticize it to say that like, you know, it just comes from the heart all the time and whatever, whatever, whatever. But really for a lot of people, it's a, a long process of learning skills and studying and internalizing lots of different things from their field and then applying that to their work. And this dichotomy of separating themselves as an artist and the artistic product that they create is is interesting in terms of perseverance. So like when you create an artistic product and it is criticized, and when I say criticized, I don't mean negative or positive, but like there's just some feedback towards whether it's good or bad, uh, taking that feedback and then applying it towards your next thing, uh, receiving no's because like a lot of art is based off of application to things, portfolios, things like that, auditions, and receiving that no and then still going forward. Because even though they're saying no to you at the time, doesn't mean that they'll say no to you in the future or that everyone will say no to you at that time as well. So it's like putting yourself into a futuristic mindset and then a right now mindset and somehow going back and saying, oh, look where I came from. All of that to me is like different forms of perseverance because in the artistic world, I feel like some people, or especially from the outside, think, oh yeah, if they're not a child prodigy or didn't like make it to fame in like five seconds, then or are famous at all, then their art uh, their art is not worth anything. And it's like persevering in despite what other people say or think about your art, persevering despite what you at one time may say or think about your art, because a lot of people can be very self critical on themselves and that might lead to them stopping that art. Um but yeah, the like keeping the production going, keeping the passion going, and keeping the growth going within your artistic uh, development would be the artistic perseverance for me. That's beautiful, Stephen. And it really plays into, because I, I wanted you to walk through your journey, right? Basically, probably since high school. Oh, yeah. Before. Maybe, maybe, maybe even from the, uh, the aisles of the grocery store when you were a young child. Yeah, no. Yeah, it definitely stems back to, um, to childhood. So like my family is a very musical family. Um, we all sing, but um, me, my sister, and my brother were instrumentalists for different time periods. Um, my sister and I both made it through high school as instrumentalists as well, um, doing like, uh, she was a percussionist and then a uh, drum major for our marching band, and I was a clarinetist and drum major for our marching band. And then all three of us, my brother and my sister, like my mom's children, were in choir uh, throughout school, did the musicals throughout school until we graduated because we come from a family that like sings in church. We, we sang in church from a very young age up until like each of us graduated from high school and like moved to our different areas. But we used to sing in church every Sunday for, I, it had to be like 16 years or not 16 years, like 15 years from the age, like three when you have children's choir and they make you do like the cute little songs and stuff. Um, but we had that, we had musical theater and uh, musical movies uh, to influence like our, our playing and our and our singing, um, so that was like the the genesis of it all. And when I got to high school, I I knew that I wanted to teach, and I was deciding between math and music. And I was like thinking about which one made me happier. What would I want to do on a daily basis? So I decided to go into music ed. So at this time, like I had no intention of composing music. I didn't know what composers did. I certainly didn't consider myself a jazz musician. I was in jazz band for two years in high school, and that's because 
the people who played tenor sax graduated. And he, uh, my band director at the time, handed me a tenor saxophone and was like, all right, I need you to do jazz band because we need a tenor. So my intention leaving high school wasn't, I'm going to be a jazz musician. It was just like, I want to teach music. And like jazz is a part of that umbrella of music that I'm teaching. So I got to my undergraduate university at Seton Hill, where I, where I met our mutual friend, and like started studying music. And one of the like weird things is like I've always been like a, 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 a what do they call noodler. Like I, I always make up music on the clarinet as well. So it's just like me sitting around and playing things, figuring out songs that I already know, or just playing random melodies within a, a certain uh, key thing. In my mind, this wasn't improvisation, uh, making up music as I go. This was just me playing around. So when I got to school, like or at college, uh, my band director heard me doing this all the time on the marching band field. He eventually started like yelling some names at me. Um, he was yelling Buddy DeFranco and Ken Poplowski at me. I was very confused. And these two people are two jazz clarinetists that um, like made jazz clarinet well them and uh, Benny Goodman of course but like though they were two more modern jazz clarinetists uh, in the bebop world who had an extensive recording history so like as soon as I went to look up these names because he had been yelling at them at me for weeks I was like oh these are jazz musicians he wants me to listen to these jazz musicians so I did and I was like wow these are really killing and he's like you should join the jazz combo the um the small group I'd never been in a small group before um so uh, the difference between what I'm talking about is there's like jazz, big band, jazz orchestra, or large ensemble, and there's small group, which can range from a duo all the way up to usually like eight or ten players. But the the focus of big band is like composition and improvisation. So lot, lots of large, um, fleshed out compositions where it's orchestrated for 17 musicians. There's a, a very big score, and the purpose of Small group is often improvisation and then composition. So like people have these compositions on standard formats, like standard chord changes, and people improvise over those for the majority of the music. So you might hear a melody and then a, maybe a repetition of the melody, and the majority of what you're hearing in that small group is improvisation. So he asked me to join that um, small group at our university, and I did for, um, I think, the last three years of school. Uh, and I played tenor in the uh, small group. Yeah. Steven, can you uh, explain eventually... what tenor is? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So I played tenor saxophone. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I told you I was going to do this to you. <laughs> yeah, you did. So I uh, I played clarinet in high school, but then I switched to, well, I added on tenor um, in the last two years. So tenor, when I say tenor, I mean tenor saxophone. And most of your instruments, your musical instruments, have like a family of instruments associated with them. So, like, for example, with the clarinet, a lot of people th think the clarinet is the clarinet, and there's no other things. But there's, like, a family of clarinets, and the most common clarinet played is the, the B-flat clarinet, also known as, like, the soprano clarinet. Uh, but there's the sopranino, nino in Italian meaning smaller. So there's the smaller soprano clarinet, which is higher because instruments uh, pitch correlate with their size. So if you have a really big instrument with lots of tubing and lots of length, the longer something is, the lower it's going to sound. And if it's shorter, it's going to sound higher. So we have um, the the soprano or the B-flat clarinet that no one ever really calls the soprano clarinet, the sopranino clarinet, the alto clarinet, and the bass clarinet. And the, those correlate with like the voice type. So when I teach choir, 
uh, we'll talk about voices in soprano, alto, tenor, bass. So those terminology uh, uh, lend themselves well to instrumentation as well. So when I picked up the saxophone, I started playing tenor saxophone. So lower than soprano, lower than the alto. And a lot of people think about alto saxophone when they think saxophone. But the tenor is a slightly lower saxophone uh, that is pitched in the same transposition. I don't, don't ask me to explain that. Uh, that's a complicated thing for some people. Uh, but the pitch in the same transposition is clarinet. So it's an easy transition from clarinet to tenor saxophone. All right. Super helpful. I, I told Stephen before we uh, recording, I said, well, one, I don't have a lot of expertise in this area and I know a lot of listeners may have some, but many won't. So throughout the conversation, I will probably bring him back uh, <laughs> into uh, trying to explain things that maybe are obvious to to Stephen, but not not to others. So I appreciate the yeah. uh, the help there. No problem. Uh, so yeah, I started playing tenor saxophone in uh, our small group ensemble, uh, we called it Jazz Combo, and the Jazz Combo ranged in instrumentation from semester to semester, but for the most part, it was like a couple of horns up front, um, and then a rhythm section of bass, uh, guitar, piano, and drums, and then uh, a vocalist as well who would sing on some tunes. So starting that journey, I had already been taking composition lessons with a different uh, director because I realized that my passion for like making up music could literally be written written down and be a thing. So I was like, oh, I want to write music. And I started these two journeys at the same time. And by the end of the three years doing that in undergrad, I realized I could put them together and do jazz composition. Um, so I did a private study with one of my professors and learned how to orchestrate for a big band for that 17-piece uh, jazz orchestra or jazz big band style or a style of or orchestration. And then went to graduate school for jazz studies. So I, I technically don't have a saxophone degree um, and I don't have uh, an undergraduate jazz degree. I have a degree in music education uh, where my vo major was voice and I did all my secondary stuff. I kept up, I played in all the bands the entire time, but I like don't have a clarinet or saxophone degree. And then my uh, master's degree is in jazz studies with an emphasis in composition. I still played saxophone the entire time and took saxophone lessons. I like to preface that when people are like, yeah, what what did you do for like all your sax literature? So what pieces did you play classically when you were in school? And I'm like, I didn't because I wasn't a classical saxophonist, um, which is the paradigm for higher education. In musical higher education, you can actually get a degree in a specific instrument. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So there's a, a, a litany of degrees in music. Um, there's performance degrees, there's education degrees, there's theory degrees, there's history degrees or musicology degrees, there's ethnomusicology degrees that are specific towards cultural music history. Now we're, uh, people are branching into like uh, music tech, audio engineering, things like that, and then music entrepreneurship. Uh, these are all different degrees, but usually in a music program, especially if you're getting a bachelor's of music, not a bachelor's of science or a bachelor of, or, of arts, you have to do a certain level of performance to graduate from that uh, music program. So a lot of schools accredited by the National Association of Schools of Music have a BM or an MM, which would be like a bachelor of music or a master of music, where you have a certain performance level that you have to attain. And for that, you have to declare a major instrument. So like me and my wife and our friends who all have our music ed degrees might all have the same degree on paper from that, but we all had a different requirement depending on what our instrument was. 
as a major. So um, I was a voice major and I uh, did vocal recitals in college. My wife was an oboe major and did oboe recitals in college. Our best friend Julia was a flute major and did flute uh, recitals in college. And we went for music ed, Julia went for music therapy. So we, we didn't have as critical of a performance thing as performance majors who their whole entire job is like, I need to be a professional musician, like by the end of this, whereas ours is like, you need to play at the professional level, but we understand that your main job is teaching. You lead a 17 person, so a big band. I know that that's part yeah, of so, what you do. We're going we're to get into that. So like when you're looking for the folks for that 17 band, are you looking for specific certifications or, or degrees within, depending on the instrument they're playing? I mean, yeah, yeah, yes and no. The degree can be one thing, but there are people with degrees who can't play like some people that don't have their degrees. I'm kind of like living proof of that. I have my master's in um, jazz studies, but because I was coming from such an underdeveloped background in saxophone, I, I don't play at the level, or I didn't play at that time, at the level of the people who were also getting their master's in saxophone. So I, uh, one of my uh, good friends from grad school, Josh, was a saxophone major for classical saxophone performance, but also plays on both sides of the horn, both sides of the horn being the paradigm that you're playing classical and jazz, right? Um, so he, he was playing a lot of jazz and classical and has his bachelor's degree in saxophone because he had those years of training doing all that technique work. He was already light years ahead of me. Uh, so like we had the same degree or we had the same level of degree, but that doesn't always correlate to the same level of language that you know on your instrument, of uh, theoretical knowledge, of things that you retain. So really it's like, what can they do? Can I hear them? Yeah, or most of the time, like I've heard uh, people that I hire or they are a part of a, a different ensemble that I know is really good. So I can trust that they know what they're doing or they went to a certain school that's really good for music. So I know that they had to get into that school somehow. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in my corporate brain, you know, I'm thinking, okay, as we hire people, do I, do I care more about their experience or do I care more about their schooling and how does that relate to what you're thinking about as you're basically hiring for your ensembles. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's like it's six in one hand, half a dozen in the other. Yeah. What I want people, everyone with their doctorate in, in jazz saxophone, jazz drum set, jazz piano to play on their, on my stuff. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be cool to have an all doctoral doctoral big band, but like at the same time that excludes so many people. If I'm, looking for that. And then too, like that's going to be, they're going to be really spread out because that level of education, it's not as concentrated as other areas of um, terminal degrees. So like the degree part is the least important. It can, it helps to like narrow it down. Like definitely people with their master's in, in jazz studies, uh, at least their master's in jazz studies. It's like, okay, cool. Yeah. So you, you, you've studied this for some time. Versus like someone who's just getting into college when you, and you don't know uh, them well. Steven, what instruments do you know how to play? I play um, saxophone. I play clarinet uh, as well. So my classical training was all in clarinet. Uh, and at the university that I teach at, I teach applied saxophone and clarinet to the students. But during the day when I uh, do choir teaching, I play piano. Uh, throughout most of it, I would not call myself a piano player. I know how to play the piano. And to people who don't do music, 
like when I say I'm not a piano player, they're like, no, I see you. You're, you're playing the piano. It's like, no, two different things. I can play the piano, but I don't play the piano. I'm not going to yeah. get up on stage. So for go, my, for my novice, I'm thinking if I could present you, like how many instruments could I present to you? And to my untrained ears, I would think, wow, Steven knows how to play that. Oh, um, so like guitar, uh, piano, most woodwind instruments. So like part and brass instruments I can like make sounds on like trumpet. I'm pretty okay at, but um, part of your music ed training or music education is learning all the instruments and playing all the instruments. And then we had ensembles in school where you would experiment playing these instruments. And a lot of people found like their favorite other instrument to play. Uh, so my favorite other instrument to play was uh, trumpet in school. These aren't instruments that like you wouldn't think another trumpet player would be like, he does not play trumpet. But like someone might be like, oh, like I can hang in a middle school band. Yeah, you can. <laughs> well, let's just let's just call it 20 instruments. I mean, I'm making up a number, but you can get by in a middle school band with probably almost any instrument, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah, and roughly, absolutely. Yeah, and roughly 20 more instruments than I can play because I grew up playing piano for, I probably played piano from age six to age 11 and steven if i sat down at a piano today i would draw a blank a complete no complete blank oh when people tell me that uh, that's like one of the most common things i hear at shows is i'll i'll be playing or something and then someone will come up i'm like man i really enjoyed that i used to play the saxophone and now i don't know how it works at all anymore and that it's not like sad as in like i'm sad for you it's just like a sad thought because it's such a big part of my life and like, I couldn't imagine not doing it. One of my yeah. biggest fears is losing a digit, like losing any finger, because then I couldn't play the saxophone. Man, so do you just have your and wife but, cut up all your vegetables? Uh, actually, uh, yeah, she complains about how slow I cut vegetables. So yeah, <laughs> it's a completely different reason, but I'm a very <laughs> slow cutter because I don't want to cut anything. And she's like, you're cutting way too slow. So when I uh, cook dinner, she chops the vegetables for me sometimes because there I'm really slow at it. Oh man. Well, uh, I appreciate you walking through your journey. That's I, I'm not surprised to hear how one, how many instruments you play, how your journey has like gone from broad to starting to be a little bit more specific into jazz. Yeah. And, and then the, your passion for writing music, for creating gets into you becoming a composer of music. So I'd be very curious, like, again, for my na- naivety around, you know, I have no idea to sit down. Like if, if I looked at music, it looks like a foreign language to me. Like I have just no clue what it's trying to say, even though I played piano right when I was a little kid and I'm sure I knew a little bit about it. How do you go about composing music? Well, that is a tough question to answer straight away. But uh, I mean, we can compare it to like visual art. Basically, I have a palette of colors, and then I'm trying to put those colors in space and time in certain styles and certain techniques that I've learned over a series of time. We work music on a 12-note system in Western music, which means that we have like basically 12 individual colors to use at one time, and then our ears are trained via like years of listening to this Western music. So even if you listen, if you listen to hip hop, if you listen to country, if you listen to musical theater, if you listen to classical music, all of that is considered 
Western music, uh, if we're talking about things that came from Western Europe, things that came from the Americas, um, I mean, and a lot of other places as well use a 12-note system or, or a pentatonic system, which would be a five-note system, but that five-note system all actually fits really well into the 12-note system. So we use these 12 individual colors and combine them in certain different ways to create uh, chords, which would be multiple notes at once, rhythms, which would be notes or no, or not just a sound in time. So like the time that they're sounding, the time that they're not sounding, which would be rests, and then trying to find your art that way. One of the great things to visualize music, uh, there's uh, a Rousseau piano things on YouTube. Uh, I love when I'm teaching uh, music history to show piano pieces. Like I like to show the score and then I like to show the Rousseau thing because the children uh, that I'm teaching are really visual in a lot of things. And sometimes when they're looking at the score, it's the, the, the sheet music. It's not as visually stimulating to them as watching someone play the piano with colors associated with it. When I sit down to write music, it can come from those three things first. I can think of it from a melodic standpoint, so individual notes. I can think of it from a rhythmic standpoint, so like rhythms that I want to use. I can think of it from a harmonic standpoint, which would be the chords that I want to use. And sometimes I'll be working with two things at once or one thing, and then eventually add in the third thing. But it's really about techniques of using those three things to get the basic shell of what you're doing. And then we come into things like orchestration and timbre, uh, dynamics, which would be the volume of things, articulation, which would be like the intensity of uh, what you're doing with your mouth uh, on instruments to put a certain note forward. So it's like almost when you say words. So if I said no, if I said no, if I said no, those all would feel different in sentences. And we have a similar thing like with articulation and tone when we're when we're playing to to inflect different things as well. And I might direct people in that way in composition, or I might not, and like they get to decide that as a solo performer. Um, but there are a lot of different elements that go into music composition that are on a page, and there are a lot of elements that have to be rehearsed that are off a page that we that have to happen in space with other people. So my process always starts with one of the three basic elements, rhythm, melody, harmony first, or two of those elements at the same time, and then expands upon that based on what ensemble I'm writing for, what age I'm writing for, and uh, like inspiration behind the music. You did a fantastic job making that kindergarten level. Way to go, <laughs> especially with the colors. That was really good. Well, um, I, I, like, right, so, I like the palette thing. It is. Uh, that is really, really good. So I'm, I'm just... In, visualizing you, you know, improvising, thinking about, okay, how do I want this to sound and using these different, you know, these three basic areas to start to combine colors and think about inflection and think about the volume and all these things. At what point do you think about the instrument itself? Oh, that's a great question. So um, sometimes it is right away. Like, for example, if I want to write a feature, then I know that I'm featuring trumpet then a lot of the decisions that I'm making rhythmically and melodically have to deal with that instrument. So like for, I have to know the range of the instruments, how high, how low they can play. And then like dexterity for different instruments is, is completely different. Um, so for example, for brass players, people who play 
uh, things that you buzz into the mouthpiece. So trumpet players, trombone players, horn players, tuba players, their lip dexterity can tire out way faster than uh, a woodwind player. Uh, people who play the flute, people who play clarinets, who blow across a straight edge, like a reed or a hole. So when I'm deciding melody, if I'm writing this really, really flowing melody that goes on for a while and repeats often, I can't, in good conscience, give that to a trumpet player and have them play for four minutes straight and go, okay, now hit this high note. That's going to be really hard for a lot of trumpet players at, at professional levels. So it's like the instrument lets you know what you can write, the limitations on what you can write, or like the things that you can highlight while you're writing. So if I want to write harmonies and I want to use a harmonic instrument, guitar will sound different than piano, uh, will sound different than harp. Uh, I could even double what I'm writing for that harmonic instrument. So things that can play multiple notes at once as a harmonic instrument and use a uh, melodic single line melody instrument like saxophone and give three saxophones the same three notes that piano is playing at the same time. And then with that, I get a new sonic timbre, a new sonic tone color from those instruments. So sometimes it's happening later when I know I want this chord and how do I orchestrate this chord. Sometimes when I'm writing features, it happens like right away. I had a side thought here. When you're listening to a song, it could be a hip hop song or country song or orchestra. Is your brain thinking in like, are there music notes going across your brain? Yeah. So yes and no. So like there, there are, uh, there's this concept called perfect pitch. The perfect pitch, um, the people who have perfect You're thinking pitch, of the movie, Steven, um, Pitch Perfect. Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> uh, no, not Pitch Perfect, but perfect. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I, I never turned that around and realized that that's where they got that. That's crazy. Um, so perfect pitch is the concept of that when you play a note, the person with perfect pitch knows exactly what note that is all the time. Um, so if I play the note C, the pitch C, uh, or A, A um, is uh, 440 hertz. Like So the frequency 4, 440 hertz is an A. And then if you double that frequency or uh, divide that frequency or give you 50% of that frequency, that's going to be A in different octaves. So like 220 hertz is a lower A, uh, 880 hertz is a higher A, 1760, so on and so forth. But if you were to play an A for me, I don't know that's an A. I might be able to give a good guess, maybe say A flat or uh, B flat, which are half steps away. I know it's in that area, but like I don't have perfect pitch just because of training, I have good relative pitch. So I don't have music notes as in specific pitches running through my head, um, but I do have like the contour, the shape of the line running through my head, the rhythms that they're using, that's easy to notate running through my head. And then the, like the sonorities, the, um, the chords that they're using running through my head. And especially via ear training, something that you do on the job or that you do in college. Some people do ear training and don't know that they're doing it. Uh, but because of uh, ear training, training your ear to hear different things, I might know like the progressions of chords that they're using. So if they're using like, da, 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 like I know they're using a four chord song, right? Um, which is an American concept uh, in popular music. Uh, so like I can, I could sit down at the piano after listening to a song usually and play it within like a, a good 15 or 20 seconds, because if it's part of like the repetitive nature of music that make it catchy, then usually like it's the same pattern over and over. So like, especially in popular music, 
it's a lot easier to like know exactly what's going but no i don't have like sheet music running through my head if that makes sense. yeah <laughs> i mean everyone listens to music differently so i figured you would listen to it differently than i would uh based on yeah your so i mean and... some people listen and like are just like listening to the words uh i've, I've met many a student especially who like when they listen to the, like when they sing back they only like say words back and they don't sing anything i'm like do you can you hear the melody and uh, sometimes it's a, oh, yeah, I just wasn't singing it. I was just talking about the words. Sometimes it's a no, which I always think it's really interesting because that's something that's been, like, drilled into my head. Hear the melody, make up a harmony, blah, 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 as a child versus just being completely amelodic. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, I appreciate the sidebar. I want to, I'll get us back to the composing piece. So the... Sorry, yeah. No, 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 I, I did it. I did it. I, I think it's just fascinating to to understand how people think about this stuff, especially when they have the expertise that you have. All right. So if you can help me visualize what you're, you're in, you know, wherever your basement, your living room, it, you get this inspiration. Like, Oh, this is, I need to write this down. I need, I, I got some melody playing in my head. I need to compose. So what do you actually like? Give me a like frame of reference of what you're actually doing when you're starting to compose music, you get some sort of inspiration. Yeah. So what you just described is like one of, I would, I'm going to narrow it down to like three different, three ways that I might compose music. So there's like groove based or melodic based uh, composing where I have a melody in my head and I want to figure out what that melody is exactly. And then I compose based off of that. So like, that's what you just described. So very often I'll be like singing to myself or whatever, whatever, like bopping down the street and I'm like making up parts in my mind. And I go, oh, no, that's good. And then I pull out my phone and I go to voice memos, thank God for voice memos, and I record it and then like describe what I'm thinking while I'm recording that. And then like later, like when I have, if I'm, because it usually doesn't happen while I'm at home, I'll go back to it, listen back and sit at the piano and make sure that I know exactly what's going on with what I'm doing. So that's like a melodic and rhythmic based thing. Sometimes I can think of, I can hear the chord underneath and I can describe what I'm thinking but um, usually that, that would be like a melodic melody and rhythm based uh, thing. So All right, pause, do pause that, there because I, I know you have another one. Pause there. When you are in the it's a serious question, I feel like most people's great ideas come in the shower. So when you're in the shower <laughs> and you have this thing going and you can't, you don't have your phone on you, what do you do? The, the, you know what? I don't sing in the shower. That is the biggest revelation of this podcast so far. I do not. Yeah. So a lot of people do their best singing while they're in the shower. I do not sing in the shower. So I don't, uh, when I'm in the shower, I, I, I kind of zone out. Fascinating. Right. <laughs> that, that shocks me. <laughs> that yeah, absolutely no, I mean, shocks me. <laughs> like maybe NPR is playing or maybe music is playing, but I'm not like, I'm not composing the way that I compose, like what you described. That is more so when I'm like walking places if I'm uh, driving and not playing music, that might happen. If I'm doing work, computer work by myself, that's a good place where melodies can come to me. So when I say there's one of three processes, I say that to say that like a lot of people think composing is like just that process and not saying it rarely is, but like it's not always that. So yeah, that, I, that happens when I'm doing work, when I'm walking. Um, and there's a process that happens to orchestrate that and to write that down and to develop that because like it might, what I might think of first might not be the end product either, but 
yeah, that that is it, a common occurrence, but it doesn't happen where you think it happens. Yeah. So give us a sense. I know we could spend probably hours on this, but give us a sense from the yeah. time that you have your voice memo, you go home to a quiet place and you start to think about, okay, how, how can I actually write this down? And then from that moment, then like how long typically does it take to actually compose an entire orchestra worth of sheet music? Oh gosh. Um, so uh, first I always or, uh, write down like a lead sheet first. So a lead sheet is a uh, sheet of music or like a lead sheet or a sketch, but a lead sheet specifically is a piece of music that has the melody, which will be the, the pitches and the rhythm on sheet music and then the chords written in like chord symbols on top of it. So like you could give that to an entire band and they could all play the song by just looking at those three things. No matter the instrument they could play, everyone could literally have the same copy. Yeah, well, not the same exact copy. So there's this thing called transposition, which makes it easier to play multiple instruments, but you can't play the same copy, uh, of the same exact copy of sheet music. So it has to be written slightly differently for different instruments. And not even differently as in like it has to look absolutely different. It just has to be in a different key, quote unquote. So like there's like different, there's 12 notes and each of those notes can be like the the main note that you're focusing around, the tonic note of your key, if you're thinking of solfege, like do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, what is your do? So if I'm writing in C major, the major key, major would be like a type of tonality. Uh, if I'm writing in C major, that means that C is my main note. And if I give that to a piano player, they're going to read concert pitch. Concert pitch instruments read at the actual note that is like described as that note. So the frequency C, concert pitch instruments read a C. Transposing instruments read based off of what they change that note to so that their fingerings match other instruments. So the, all the saxophones, for example, transpose music. So if I'm reading in concert C major, that means like the pianos, the flutes are all playing in C major, the tenor saxophone reads D major a whole step up. Uh, because if not, then when you picked up a tenor saxophone, and then switched over to alto, you would be pressing the same buttons, but calling them different notes. So it's like a, a mechanism in music that when you're first learning about it as an orchestrator, as a teacher, sometimes it's really confusing for people, especially if they have no instrumental experience. Like vocalists are all concert pitch. They all read in concert. But when they start doing instrumental stuff uh, as a music teacher, they're like, wait, what? Why does the score have like five different keys on it? So no. So I have to worry about that when I'm writing lead sheets, but I usually, I'll write things out in concert pitch for myself and just transpose them in my mind while I'm playing. Um, if, I, if I pick up my horn, because a lot of times I don't pick up my horn until I'm at a certain step in the process. So I write out a lead sheet in concert pitch just to get all of the basic information on the thing. And then I have to worry about form. What do I want the shape of the piece to be? Because like I have 17 instruments to work with in my jazz orchestra and what i don't want to do is go okay everyone play at once like all the time the entire time so i have to think about the shape of the piece in terms of form how many times am i going to repeat this melody when am i how am i going to change the melody throughout the song how am i going to change it harmonically rhythmically orchestrationally like so is the trumpet always going to be playing the melody or is the is the tenor saxophone going to join them in, in harmony are they going to play at the same time are they going to play 
um, antiphonally. So an antiphon is like a, a counter melody where uh, like they play back and forth from each other. Are they going to play two different melodies at the same time? Um, these are all decisions that have to be made when you after you have like your main melody. So like you, you make a lot of those decisions, spend a lot of time processing uh, those changes and deciding where you want to put them in the uh, sections. There's some paradigms like um, backgrounds when someone's improvising. Oh, when do I want the improvisation to come in? Like, so with jazz orchestra, we have the paradigm of improvisation. So we are writing music for these 17 musicians and we're doing all this like composition and orchestration. But at some point in that composition, usually there's going to be a portion where a soloist is going to play or going to make up music around your music. So they're going to improvise. And we have to give them what we call chord changes, a series of chords in certain orders and rhythms so that they know what they're improvising over. So it's not just like purely made up as in, well, it is purely made up. But, but like, they have they have guardrails, basically. Exactly. So yeah, so they're not just playing any of the 12 random notes. So they're weaving through this series of like notes that they can play or could play or play over those notes. They can superimpose other notes that they know sound interesting on top of other notes while they're playing this and you decide when that comes in, uh, what goes around it, who's playing with that soloist, and then uh, how long it should be, things like that. I feel like there's more stuff that I'm forgetting, but like when I compose for jazz orchestra, depending on the deadlines, depending on my schedule, it can take anywhere from like, a, like during the summer, it can take like a week, a week and a half, two weeks, to write something, especially if, I, if I'm not traveling or anything like that, I'm just at home writing music. Great. Yeah. It can take a week to two weeks to do a big band piece, right? It's never really going to take me. I'm, I'm not like a, uh, a turnaround in two days person. And there are some people who are really, are really good at that, that they go, Oh, you need a big band piece. Yeah. I can get it for you in like 72 hours. And these are typically but how long? My big band pieces usually last between seven to 10 minutes. Um, I need to get better at writing shorter pieces. My, one of my goals is to write more like kid-friendly music. And when I say kid-friendly music, I don't mean like my music is explicit or as touching on subjects that aren't kid-friendly, but like it's not friendly towards student age musicians. So I can't go to a high school and say, all right, play my big band chart. One, two, three, four. They wouldn't be able to. It's at a professional level. Uh, exactly. So like I need to uh, one of the things I'm like doing some score study and uh, hoping to do right now is to write some more music that is more education-based friendly towards middle school and high school jazz ensembles. But yeah, uh, it can be anywhere from seven to 10 minutes, but during the school year. So I have three different teaching jobs. I teach high school full-time. I teach online adjunct at one college. I teach in-person adjunct at a different college. So I'm kind of busy during the week. And I try and like schedule out my composing time around that. And during the weekends, I'm in a travel season right now for performances. Uh, so I haven't gotten to do much writing, which is unfortunate. And because of that, like I, it could take two weeks, one week, or it could take two months to write a big band piece, depending on your time. So like compositional output, uh, I think many musicians and many composers aren't just one thing. A lot of composers and musicians teach um, a lot of composers and musicians produce their own things, which is a whole different aspect of music business where you're not playing or writing music, but you're just trying to get your music played. And that takes hours upon hours of work. Uh, it doesn't just happen. Well, you're obviously making a ton of decisions 
throughout this entire process. And I'm sure it's just, you're, you're constantly changing. You're constantly evolving the, the composition of the music, but then at the finality, once you've composed the music in a lot of the music that you make, you are actually the one orchestrating it. Yeah. So, um, and sometimes that orchestration and, and composite that happens at the same time. So like when it comes to orchestration, orchestration is really just de- deciding what instruments are playing different things. So like the, if I'm talking about my music, I'm the composer and the orchestrator at the same time. When we talk about things like film music, uh, it's really easy to have two people in that role. So like, um, let's say Hans Zimmer, Hans Zimmer, um, does a lot of film scoring, but if you want a, a, a orchestra, a literal orchestra to play uh, to his music and not like a, a produced orchestra, because he does a lot of like music production film score where it's electronic instruments and orchestra. But um, when it comes to like having a symphony orchestra play his work, he might have someone come in and orchestrate the 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 sketch or the lead sheet of what he has to those instruments. So he's the one who thought of all the rhythms, all the harmonies, all the um, changes in the music and the entire form of the song. But he might have that on like six lines of staff paper and like know what is what. And someone might come in and take those six lines of staff paper and associate it with 20 something instruments. For me, I'm usually doing that simultaneously. And then when you're actually at a performance, you are also the conductor. Which in, again, a non-music world, that is the person that's standing up there with the, is it a baton? It is in classical music, usually in classical orchestral music and band music, it is usually a baton. In uh, jazz music, they don't usually use a baton. It depends on like the instrumentation, because sometimes people are very used to seeing that, um, that visual aspect of a baton hitting the invisible plane to tell where their beat is. They don't like watching a hand for it, or they don't like, like internalizing a beat. Um, yeah, so I'm the literal person conducting the orchestra. For me in the in the big band world, the conducting is not like always waving my hands. So like we might think of people like Leonard Bernstein, who um, is a composer or was a composer and conductor. He conducted the New York Philharmonic for uh, many years, did like lots of educational videos with them. Like he was one of the first people to do educational videos with orchestras, um, children's concerts. Uh, so people think of like that conductor as a, like, that's what a conductor does. They stand for the orchestra, they conduct the entire time. But in the jazz idiom, I don't have to give the rhythm or the tempo the entire time because there's drums and we're going to be following the rhythm section, drums, piano, bass. So the drums and bass specifically control the time a lot of the time because the drums are constantly playing throughout the piece unless I wrote parts that they aren't playing. And the bass is usually playing something called a walking bass line. Um, a walking bass line is they're playing sometimes and most of the time making up what they're playing based on the chords, but playing quarter notes. They're playing on the beat. So if the tempo is one, two, three, four, they're playing something like dum 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 dum, and those two things mixed together, the 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 drum set and the bass control the tempo. So yeah, I'm conducting, but I'm more so like cueing people's lines, making sure everyone's shaping the dynamics together. Uh, everyone knows where their uh, entrances are or like uh, dictating when soloists are going or, or when we're going on from the solo section. So it's a little, it's not less intense of conducting than um, orchestral conducting. It's just a lot different in function. Interesting. So 
how much I know that you are typically the one that has written the music that you are then conducting. So you are probably mm. extremely familiar with the music, but prior to a performance, how much preparation are you going? Yeah, no, it depends on what you're writing. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of hard to to say that. Yeah, I'm going to be absolutely prepared because I wrote the music. Because sometimes what you wrote, you haven't heard out loud yet like in, in a very long time so you heard like instruments do it but they always i'm oh, sorry you're like the computer do it but the computer does it perfectly the computer is mathematically doing it and will always do it without fail and as a composer like you have to always think is what i'm literally writing on that paper the best way to communicate that idea like visually and rhythms be like pitches which are assigned vertically have to be on the minor space that they're supposed to be on right rhythms can be written slightly differently to make similar sounds. So for example, if I wanted a short note, I could put a quarter note with an art with an articulation, with a with a, a staccato to tell the players, play that really, really short. The little dot sometimes appears above or below a quarter note. Or I could write the shorter rhythm of an eighth note and give an eighth rest. But if I'm doing lots of short notes, it would get really, really cumbersome to read that. Um, so it's like hard to to say that um, that it won't doesn't require preparation because sometimes I have to communicate ideas that um, I didn't think about needing to communicate uh, as a conductor, and I won't know that until we get into a rehearsal. But I have to explain that uh, unless I've already gotten to a situation and then I write it so I don't have to explain it. I write it a different way so I don't have to ex explain it because uh, rehearsal time is money. And when it comes to like pieces that you wrote. Say I have a show, it, like the, the shows I'm doing this this week. Um, well, this weekend I'm not conducting. I'm part of the group. Um, no one's conducting. Uh, well, I, I have to like cue stuff. But um, say I'm doing stuff from this week. If I was conducting it, some of that music I wrote in November or started to write in November. So like I, I have to review it because the thing I'm thinking about most is the last piece that I just wrote. So I, if I'm premiering seven new compositions, I might have to review pieces seven through five, like before I go to a rehearsal so that I'm not like absolutely remembering everything that happened in those at the rehearsal. Sure. And Steven, those 17, let's keep with the big band, the 17 yeah. people that you are conducting out of the 17 on average, because I know that I'm sure that there's a rotation of people out of those 17, oh, like, cool. are there any people that are like, I don't need a conductor? Like I'm not going to even pay attention to what Steven doing while there's, you know, oh, absolutely people not. that yeah. are, that are like, I need, I can't do this without a conductor. Like, is, is there a it's, span of people like that in, in a typical orchestra? No, I, I wouldn't think so. Um, so it's like, regardless of the ensemble setting, if it's large enough to need a conductor, it needs a conductor. So like sometimes there is a paradigm where like, you don't quote unquote need a conductor because something's so rehearsed that even slight changes in tempo and slight changes like in the speed of the music like are anticipated by everyone because they've been playing it for so long. Yeah, but at the same time, there are things that need to be explicitly cued. So if, if something, if there's a solo section that's open, someone has to say when it's going to go. So the, even if there's not a person up front, uh, so the big bands can have a, not have a conductor but there has to be someone leading it to say when things are happening. So when it comes to conducting in the in the in the format of keeping time, yeah, and in the jazz idiom, 
I'm not super. Basically, if there's a conductor up there, they need to be there and everyone's paying attention. Right, exactly. Yeah. Got it. Again, didn't didn't know. So <laughs> looking looking toward the <laughs> expert. All right. So as a conductor, I, I want to ask this and then I want to get into some of the like influences of your music because I think you have a lot of interesting cool. influences to your music. As a conductor, I want to try to reach for a sports analogy. Do you feel like as a conductor that you're more of a coach or a cheerleader or a captain? I would say in rehearsal format, it's like a coach. So like before the performance, you're the coach, you're, you're shaping the vision. A lot of the times, like you're, you're, you're the person that everyone's asking questions of you. You're the one making that decision. Um, and you're telling people, you, you have to tell people they're doing something wrong. You have to say, Hey, though, that's right. Or like, let's change that. Blah, 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 blah. So you're calling the shots, you're running the plays, especially if you're like the composer and conductor, uh, cause it's like your vision or whatever. But when it comes to the performance after that, you're more so the captain because what's happening is outside of rehearsal, I'm not going to stop a piece and talk to people or like shout at them while we're rehearsing. So like they're following my lead, but they're the ones performing. They're the ones bringing music to life. So like I'm still like at the front, I'm still like leading the ensemble. But at the end of the day, when it comes to the, the, the performance time, we're all in the synchronous performance together and I'm just leading it rather than like shaping it that all comes beforehand so if it's a sports analogy if we're talking about like basketball for example if you had a 17 piece basketball team uh we're calling plays i'm i'm showing them the playbook well in advance uh we're we're running those plays uh they on their own time are doing their like uh suicide drills and their layups and their uh whatever they need to practice and as a group we're just running plays talking about plays um and then when it comes to the game there's no there's not really a coach. I'm calling plays from the court. Perfect. That's all. That's, that's awesome. Well, well done on the analogy. All right, Steven, what influences your music? That's an eclectic question. Um, so a lot of people, uh, grew up with jazz music. If you noticed when, uh, I talked about like my early influences, I did not mention jazz at all. Um, so I didn't listen to jazz. Yeah, pea, peas and carrots and cereals uh, influenced your music. Yeah, early on. not right. Um, I didn't. I didn't listen to jazz music explicitly until probably until I was twenty. Like so, like my sophomore year of college, where I was like, "Oh, I should listen to this stuff if I want to do it." Like I like before, I was like, "Oh, I'll kind of listen to it." I didn't get into like heavy listening until my graduate degree where I realized I was so far behind in knowing the language, knowing the figureheads. Um, so my early influences, my specifically really early influences would be Alan Menken. If you don't know who Alan Menken is, Alan Menken is the person who wrote all the music for the Disney Renaissance. So um, from the little mermaid all the way through, I think Tarzan was the last movie considered part of the Disney Renaissance, but there are a couple movies in the Disney Renaissance he didn't do. Like Tarzan specifically, he didn't do. Phil Collins did that. Mulan, he didn't do. I can never remember the name of that composer. And Lion King, he didn't do. Hans Zimmer did that. But all the other movies during that time, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Hunchback of Notre Dame, that were musical movies, he wrote the music for. Um, and I internalized those movies like real hard as a child. We'd watch them over and over. I really loved um, Disney music as a kid. And I loved just like big sounds and sweeping orchestras and like all these inflections that he was having, even though I didn't listen to classical music. 
So like he was one of my very early influences on like just a diverse array of sounds because every movie sounded different, uh, but every movie sounded like Alan Menken, which was really cool. I grew up singing gospel music in the church. Um, so uh, gospel choirs were a big part of my childhood. And my mom was really into funk and R&B. So I listened to a lot of like neo-soul artists and, and funk artists from like the 70s. So people like Earth, Wind & Fire, people like um, the Ohio Players, Tower of Power, like that was playing. I wasn't asking who they were. I just knew the songs, right? Like I, I would listen to those things. And like people like Music Soul Child and Erica Badu, India Ari, um, will be playing outside of that. So uh, a lot of Black American music via gospel, funk, R&B. I wasn't really a big hip hop person as a as a kid. Um, I don't I don't think my mom was like actively not letting us listen to that. She just like didn't, so I didn't seek it out. And when I got into middle school, um, guitar not guitar didn't come out, but like uh, it was about to. And I had just gotten into like rock music. And when I say rock, I mean punk rock music. So my eclectic childhood really feeds into what I write now. So like when I talk about jazz influences. Like I really, playing wise, really love Dexter Gordon's playing. I really love Joe Henderson's playing. These are all tenor saxophonists. Most people like will think of John Coltrane immediately. Um, and John Coltrane, uh, while being like a really big figurehead, just like at the time of my early saxophone playing was so unattainable of a level that like I didn't gravitate to him because I, I couldn't play what he was playing um, at, when I started listening hardcore so now yeah i have a poster of him in my office and i love him but like when i was starting it was people like joe henderson and people like dexter gordon who shaped what i was playing and when i was uh, when it comes to writing these big band composers really really spoke to me so there's like a litany of big band composers and when people think jazz orchestra or big band a lot of the times they think 1920s swing era and they think you're going to play songs like in the mood you don't know that piece by name. It's the one that goes like the the, the dance band oh, yeah. theme. It's, that's not what I thought big band music was. That I already played in like my high school big band, but we played like your your typical like school age charts, which were standards like Great American Songbook songs that were orchestrated in a way that you could play them. So it was like kind of in between the 1920s and uh, like getting that paradigm to your school age band, but like we weren't playing contemporary things at my, at my school at least. Um, lots of uh, programs with like more advanced jazz uh, bands like do play contemporary music for high schoolers, but my high school wasn't like that because we were really small. So when I got into grad school uh, and like towards late my senior year, people were recommending some music to me and there's this one composer that stuck out a whole bunch. Her name was Maria Schneider, well, it was, her name is Maria Schneider. Maria Schneider um, is a New York-based composer. Her first album, Evanescence, came out like two years after I was born, in 1994. And it is probably one of the most impactful first listens that I've had in a really long time, or like thinking back in my life. So like when I turn on that record and I listen to it for the first time, I, I was just like jaw-dropped. It was like band, a big band sounds like this? This is what a jazz orchestra sounds like? Because we like played some more modern stuff in school but it still wasn't as intense and as dark and as chromatic chromatic meaning colorful meaning that they're using lots of the notes at the same time rather than like seven of the notes or uh like three notes at a time so it wasn't as like 
it wasn't as colorful as 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 I was experienced to. So like I started looking up um, more artists like uh, Maria Schneider uh, and my teacher in grad school uh, recommended tons of listening. So there's like this litany of composers that came before her and this litany of composers that came after her that um, really feed into my music. There's so many people working today where that are truly inspirational, but we exist in this paradigm because of like the people who came before us and the people who like really established the renaissance of the jazz orchestra. So when someone listens to your music, what do you want them to feel? I like to theme my music. So a lot of the times um, I'll write suites of compositions. Um, I'll write pieces back to back to back that are a part of a theme. Um, and I call it a suite, which would just be a collection. In the last couple of years, I wrote a big band suite called Smash. And that suite is like all comic book based music. And depending on each piece, I want them to feel a different way um, about the piece. Uh, so for example, during Smash, the piece, not the collection, but Smash, the, the title piece, um, I want them to feel like powerful. I want them to feel like they can smash things. So like the superheroes of um, of the Hulk or Superman or Captain Marvel, whichever Captain Marvel you're thinking of, DC or or Marvel, uh, they, they're both super strong and super powerful. Or the villains like Solomon Grundy, I want them to, to feel like that. But then, like, uh, the single that I have coming out, the piece The Mystics, is supposed to be, like, uh, characters like Doctor Strange, uh, Zatanna, uh, Scarlet Witch, people who, like, do things in the mystical realm of comic books. So that one I wrote to be a bit more ethereal, to be a bit more mysterious, to be a bit more chromatic, uh and 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 like to wave around it's almost like you're like casting a spell while you're listening to it so it depends on what the 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 inspiration for the piece is and a lot of the times that's how i like composing uh so sometimes you can do like serial composition or absolute music where you are writing and you are writing to write that that piece and like it sounds like what it sounds like but you're not necessarily having an oh a story to it you just might be causing tension and release tension and release uh but i like to associate stories with mine so usually there's like a predetermined thought that goes in that i talk about before the piece starts and then everyone has like their personal view of it afterwards i want to pause on that if the the audience when you're actually doing a performance that you you will pause and tell the audience a little bit of background about the piece that they're about to hear yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, and there's a paradigm and lots of different styles of music to do that. I mean, with with music that has lyrics, so music that uses vocalists has lyrics, it's a lot easier to communicate specific ideas because you're using text. And sometimes it's a lot easier to, 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 to not insinuate specific ideas because you're using text and to be more, to be less leading on what you're talking about. But um, with text, there's a whole different paradigm. To work with but when you're working without text where um there is no sung word there could be singers singing on syllables so it's very common in big bands to have a singer that is singing on oohs and ahs or doos and dahs um to the music so they're just like another instrument but they're a tone color so in order to communicate that idea titles are really effective say i wanted to write a piece that was political in nature i might um evoke a, a quote from a speech 
or title it so that it's uh, attributed to a certain political figure, right? So you might think of that in advance. So there's ways to like just title your work in order. So for as an example, you could call one of your pieces of work, I had a dream. And obviously that's yeah, exactly. going to conjure up certain feelings, emotions from the audience so that then when they hear the music that they're in, maybe they're not thinking the exact same thing, but everyone's probably within the same realm as they're listening. Exactly. Or you could go like kind of in the middle of those two ideas of explicitly telling and uh, giving them like a, a, a certain idea. You could shorten things and hint and then maybe tell them later or what's an example or of that? kind of um, like, so if you made a thing called dream and like, it's like ethereal and it's a dream mood, but then later you're like, yes, this is, uh, was inspired by Martin Luther King's. I have a dream speech. Some people mean might, reflect on what you wrote afterwards and go oh some i feel differently about this piece now so it's always it all depends on how you communicate what you're um what you're doing but very often while i'm conducting like between each piece i'll talk about what you what each piece is about because i just like them to know before they listen so it's not like a afterthought like they're, they're actively listening and going oh okay oh i, I see and they and they feel the story regardless of what story there is. So, like for example, um, I have a piece called uh, Zephyr, and Zephyr, which is named after like the Greek east wind uh, or a gust of wind. Now that is its regular meaning, um, is supposed to be about the power of flight, like the superpower. Like when you talk about superpowers, all everyone goes like, "What would your favorite superpower be?" Mine isn't flight. A lot of people choose flight, so I wanted to write a piece yours? about that. Uh, I I feel like teleportation, but teleportation with uh, with a, a sense of omniscience. Uh, and a teleportation via portals would be a lot easier because then you could open a portal and see where you're going. But teleportation without knowing or seeing where you're going beforehand sounds terrifying to me. Because what if I like teleport into the middle of a person, you know, like mm. or I teleport and there's like a car where I'm teleporting and it runs me over or like my leg is going halfway through the car. Yeah. So, you thought into this. I, I respect this. We, I, I, we, we, we sit you. around fires all the time and like talk about these types of things. And you've obviously put some serious thought into this. Yes. Teleportation with, with omniscience as a, a portion of it. Cause I mean, like if there's a situation that I need to avoid, I can teleport away. Say I'm fighting somebody and I'm like, ah, I need some different supplies for this. Boom. I'm out. Right. And I'm back with those supplies. Uh, versus, or, and, you know, never have to pay for a flight again. Uh, yeah, and I can yeah. teleport myself up really, really high and then teleport myself to like, I don't know. In this extremely I realistic mean, hypothetical that you're teleporting <laughs> via portals, are you able to teleport um, into the future or into the past? Oh, the, I hope not. Yeah. I Time travel as a concept scares me. Uh, not, especially future but like past, there's there's a certain year I just don't want to go past. So like a lot of people romanticize like old times and blah 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 blah. And for the listener, I, I I'm I'm an African American man, uh, and I I don't want to go past a certain time. So time travel is scary to go back upon because it's just like you know what uh, the before the, the before I just don't want to go back in general. Like I feel like if I went to the 1800s and was like, hey, what's up, guys? It wouldn't bode well for me. But if I went to the future and saw stuff happening and then came back to the time that I live in now, regardless of what that stuff was, I'd be freaked out the entire time. So like anytime someone mentions time travel, I'm just like, no. Yeah, you're not, no. you're not messing with that. Yeah, 
That's uh, yeah, not at that's all. That's fair. All right, I'll bring us back again. Sorry, another sidebar, but uh, very no, interesting. I like I'm, I like I'm definitely gonna have, definitely gonna have the same answer you have now because I love the, the you know my my kid, my six year old is super into Harry Potter, so he's all about like apparating, and you know going yeah. basically what you're talking about doing, and uh, but yeah, apparating with omniscient. That's uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's almost like uh, it's almost like what people usually think is more like flu powder. Like the the yep. when Harry goes like diagonally instead of diagon alley, <laughs> he ends up where he wants, but not in the way that he wants it, and that's terrifying to me. Yes, wow, just a spectacular reference. All right, Thank you. so Thank you. I'm gonna bring us. I'll bring us back to. So you've got an album actually coming out smash. Um, I, and yes. you just, you just referenced that in your performances that, it, that most times that you will give some sort of contextual clue, whether through the song title or actually speaking out loud or rating, Hey, here's what I want. You know, here, here's the influence of this music or where this comes from. So when you actually release an album, are you providing that context as well? Or is it just the music? Well, I mean, in the current paradigm, it's kind of hard to do that because um, a lot of people stream music today. Like they don't buy physical copies of things. So when you buy a physical copy of things, you have a paradigm of like album notes and album art. So uh, with streaming music, you get like one section of album art, the, the cover. Um, and my cover is minimalistic. It's a cityscape in like primary colors with the word smash and comic book font. So like it's reminiscent of comic books but it's not explicitly saying this is comic book based music for jazz orchestra uh, or comic book inspired music for jazz orchestra. So yes, the listener might guess that, but by the titles, I hope they would guess that, or I hope they would like, get that hint. Um, but if you buy a physical copy or if you were like uh, social media also helps because I just talk about it. Right. Um, so that's a different way of getting that idea out there. But when it comes to like, the, the main way people consume music now, which is streaming, uh, and that might be streaming on a, like say I get a song on a playlist somewhere, uh, they'll hear that song and for them, it might be the title as the only clue to what it's about. Uh, they might not even look at their phone to, or to see like the artwork. So if they read the title and have no artwork, that's the only thing they have. And sometimes they might not look at their phone at all, so they just have the sounds. So it just depends on how far the listener goes into wondering what that idea is because the, the information is always out there. I mean, like every artist you probably are listening to has a website of some sort, which describes the work. Yeah. So it's a little bit of onus on the listener to, yeah. to go speak that if they want to, want, to kind of want. Yeah. Cause it, it's music without words. And with the, uh, the American listener specifically um, like likes words. Like if you go to Europe and you play them instrumental music, they're like, oh, cool. Yeah, cool. Great. The American listener uh, is used to words. A lot of our popular music is just words uh, or not just words, but like needs words. Um, so without words, they get kind of get lost in the idea uh, of what is the song even about uh, and aren't, aren't as comfortable with not having an explicit meaning presented to them. Sounds like you need to go tour in Europe. Yeah, well, that that would be great, but that requires a certain amount of uh, notoriety. European big bands are uh, a thing, so um, while the like, North America hasn't moved on from 
big bands. It's not like that's not a thing. I mean, I'm running one and I know many people running their own big bands and they could be in the paradigm of like a literature band where they play other people's music or they could be like a composer-based band. They could be a collective where it's like a lot of composers putting their new music into a band together. But it's definitely more popular in Europe to listen to instrumental music. Uh, so like bands like Starkey Puppy, which is a more groove-based, funk-based, but they're like an improvising band. Um, jazz is like a four-letter word for a lot of people uh, where they don't want them to be themselves to be described as jazz or they don't think jazz is the only thing that can describe what they're doing. And I, I agree that like labeling music is sometimes really crazy because like it can fit in so many different categories. Like when people have arguments about Taylor Swift, they're like, I miss when she made country music or now she's a pop artist. They're, I don't know. I mean, her song now is more singer, song or folk writer stuff. And it's like, okay, but like she's at the end of the day, she's just making music. Right. Um, but like instrumental music versus vocal music is like, is like a thing in Europe where people are like, Oh, both are great. Whereas in North America, it's not like, right. Yeah. So I would love for you to walk us through or, you know, highlight us like, where can we find about smash? When is it coming out? Uh, where do you want to direct the yeah. to, to, to hear some of the stuff that you've been talking about? Cool. My first full big band album. I only have one album that's out right now um, called Sweet Childhood. And it's a mix between big band. And then there's a different type of ensemble called a mixed ensemble that I'm using that uses like a string quartet in it. Um, and that was written a while ago, but my new album Smash is a big band album, a jazz orchestra album uh, that's coming out on the label Next Level, which is an imprint of the outside in music label. That's coming out June 17th of 2022. So depending on when you're listening, it might already be out or it might be coming out that you're listening to this like a year and a half later. Hey, it's already out. You can look me up uh, under Stephen Philip Harvey and the album's titled Smash uh, with an exclamation point on it. Uh, but the single for this album will be The Piece of the Mystics. Ironically, it's coming out the week after Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I'm super excited for that movie. And then The Mystics comes out uh, the week after. So on May 13th, that single drops. And then June 17th, the album drops and I'll be going on a small like mid-Atlantic album release tour uh, through the Eastern shore of Maryland, Baltimore, Cleveland, uh, Pittsburgh, Youngstown, Ohio. And I should be, it's not confirmed yet, but I think I'll be doing something in New York, but it won't be my big band. It'll be a part of a collective, but we'll be playing some of that music uh, in New York as well in uh, June and July. I'll make sure to to you know point the listeners in the direction via like show notes and, and other means. So um, cool. you'll find the links within the show notes for the album. Uh, we'll certainly link your website. You've got a, you know all the all the great stuff up there on your website, all your past music, and so people can find all this. And you know now we have at least a glimpse of what it takes to compose a lot of these things. And yeah, it's, it's so different. It's it's wild. Uh, I, I, and I know we only hit the surface level. Yeah. That's the part that's, that's funny to me. It's like, like, yeah, we, we talked uh, to, to do it in like an hour to do it in two hours is like literally just like knocking on the door of what is possible. Uh, like I would love to, to sit and talk and uh, for hours and hours upon this, but like, you know, you not you, Clay, but you, the listener. I, I don't. I don't know if you want to 
do that as a not jazz musician. Well, maybe we can have a, a side one that says, hey, this is going to get really deep really fast and it's going to be multiple hours long. But I'm I'm super curious about it because I just think about, as you were talking about all these things, you were talking about the all the decision points that happen and and how how many decisions you make. And then once you make a certain decision, then you make that that you're like it's like a tree growing it just branches and continues to branch and based you know it's just like this domino effect that occurs that's how in western music in our 12 note system like we can still make this diverse array of genres of melodies of rhythms of things that sound completely different or sound similar i mean there there's paradigms of writing on standard forms where everyone who's writing a blues for example uses a similar format to their 12 bar melody but the melody might sound completely different or they might change the chords slightly somehow and like you said like that tree effect it like everyone can start at the same point they can even be given the same outline and still end up with completely completely different uh ending things that sound nothing alike that uh to a listener that doesn't know where they started might not know that they started with the same inspiration yeah, that, I think that's so neat. And everyone, just like you, has their own influence of how they grew up, right? You were in a gospel band. You didn't really you know, listen to jazz until your 20s. I mean, and now you're leading a jazz ensemble. So you have all these, and you, you love superheroes. You love, like, all, all these influences are completely unique to you. And then so you combine that with the ability to branch in so many different ways as a composer then yeah, you get to create music that no one, you know, only you, Stephen Philip Harvey, can actually create because you're the only one that yeah. has these experiences. And that's the cool part about being a, a part of a composition community. Like a lot of people might think, oh, okay, like you're about your music, but it's just so cool to hear everything everyone has to say through their music because everyone is using the same stuff to say the most different things. It's almost like reading a book, like everyone's using the same 26 letters, but the way you put them together and the way you space them apart can communicate completely different things. Well, you're certainly living your why or your purpose as being you know, the best creator that you can be. And you have certainly persevered. You gave us an awesome definition about perseverance earlier, Stephen, and you have obviously gone through this perseverance of just learning, developing skills, studying, trying to apply it to all these different areas, whether it's through teaching or composing or orchestrating or conducting. You're, I know you're constantly getting feedback from others, good and bad. Yeah, um, Hopefully right. constructive, hopefully good and constructive. And then I'm sure you're being told no many times as, as any creator yeah, is, but, yeah. but you keep going mm-hmm. and you keep that passion. The passion is very evident. I just think that's Awesome, and I'm, uh, I hope you're you know really proud of of everything you've accomplished because just even in just this small glimpse, like I can tell the amount of effort and work that goes into creating something that I then get to listen to for seven to ten minutes, and yeah, the I, amount of work I, I appreciate that. that. Is awesome. Well, regardless of what like paradigm you work in, whether it's a different genre of music, whether you're into hip hop, country, or jazz or whether you're a dancer or a writer or like a creator of some sort or even if you're not like an artist but you're like doing stuff in your field you're going to be told all these things you're going to be giving that constructive criticism and you're going to be told no to different opportunities and a lot of people can take that and go well then i'm i'm no good 
or what I'm doing is no good and I should just stop what I'm doing. I should stop altogether. And hopefully the reason that anyone would ever give you constructive feedback is for you to build yourself up and for you to continue to do that work. So like me at this moment, I'm 29, I turn 30 next uh, month uh, and I'm releasing this album. It's been a dream to, to, to record this music, to get these musicians together, to uh, put out this album. But like now I'm just looking to the future. What's the next thing that I'm doing? What I'm doing, what and how can I, who can I look at? Who can I listen to? Who can I study? And how can I grow from here to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing? So it's this ever never ending journey for some people that a lot of people think is a straight line. And to persevere through that, you're not only persevering through your present, but you, you persevered from your past into your present only to persevere into your future. So there's no reason to stop what you're doing, only just to keep going. Uh, take those no's as information as to how to get to a yes and take those yeses as a good moment to validate what you're doing, but not as a way to stop what you're doing and to like sit on it. You have to keep going. I couldn't articulate it any better, Stephen. And it's it's perfect because this episode will be called Build with Stephen Philip Harvey. And what cool. you just articulated is perfect. I mean, we're building, you know, you're you're helping build and and inspire others. And I think that's fantastic. So I just am so grateful for the time for allowing me to ask rudimentary questions to an expert on a topic that I don't know. Oh no, I I think it's real fun. I think that's so fun. (laughs) And uh and just appreciate your words and your wisdom and look at really looking forward to the album coming out. And I love to hear the context of this stuff so that as we're listening we, you know, can appreciate a little bit more about not only what goes into it, but what you're trying to communicate through your music. And so really, really neat. Very uh, grateful for your time, Stephen. So um, thanks, thanks for, for being me. on. I really appreciate the time to talk about all this. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Hey, listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build With Clay on Instagram at buildwithclay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.